0: Do you believe in unseen powers and forces that control the world? People often feel helpless living in, the big, in a big world. And when things don't go their way, many would blame unseen forces working against them. They might say they're just subject to fate or that the stars are aligned against them. Today, it's very in vogue to just attribute power to the universe itself. And some might say just, I guess the universe doesn't want us to be together. And more and more, it seems people are are open to believing in unseen powers that can influence and control their lives. Those living in the ancient world very much believed in unseen powers that influenced the world, only they viewed these powers as personal, not impersonal, from angels to demons to gods to demigods. What's interesting, though, is though we live in a post-modern age, such beliefs are making a comeback. People are once again open to the idea that spiritual powers like Demons might be responsible for the bad things happening in their life. Belief in demons is on the rise from, according to one poll, 55% in 1990 to 70%. In 2007, people are more likely to believe in evil forces like demons that are at work in their lives than they are in believing in God, a good force in their life. And similarly, there was a, a strange but sharp rise in exorcisms in 2018, In the Catholic Church, and even some evangelical churches. And just reflecting a growing belief that people are starting to believe more that demons are responsible for the world's problems. Now, I'll take belief in demons seriously, but the culture is at least open to it. There's an appetite for it. This is reflected in our entertainment. Literally, last week, I was putting on a YouTube video for the kids, an alphabet video, and an ad came on before a new, I guess, ABC show, it's literally called Evil, and it's about demon possession. It's just tapping into people's fears, fears on the rise. We live in an uncertain world. Many feel like so much of their life is outside of their control, and so when bad things happen to them, who is to say evil spirits are not to blame? Though those in the world don't accept the Bible, Scripture actually supports some of these beliefs. The Bible teaches Satan is a real person. He's an angelic being who rebelled against God. And he's joined by a legion of demons who are just fallen angels, those who joined in his rebellion. And together they seek to oppose God, corrupt his work, and uh, destroy his creation. The world of angels and demons is completely unknown and undetectable to man. If we're going to know anything about it, it must be revealed by God. But God has revealed that spiritual powers are real, Satan and demons are active, and they want nothing more than to see people enslaved to sin and corruption. If this is true, if there are unseen forces at work, some opposing us, what are we supposed to do about it? How would we avoid their harm? Well, the answer of most people in the ancient world was to appease these powers. You've got to pay homage to them if you're going to. Not be harmed by them. Do you want victory in battle? You better pray to the God of war. Or do you want your crops not to fail? You better sacrifice to the spirits in charge of fertility. And this is just a part of the fabric of ancient pagan society. Now, you know, Christianity was birthed out of such a pagan society. And Christianity, like Judaism, stood in stark contrast, contending that there's only one God. There's only one true God, and all the other gods are are not gods at all. Some might actually be demonic forces, but they're not worthy of worship or adoration. Only God is worthy of worship and his son, Christ Jesus. But as Christianity spread, some of its distinct beliefs were blended together with some pagan beliefs and created this new strange hybrid. And that's what was happening in the city of Colossae. A strange teaching arose, and it combined elements of Christianity and, and elements of paganism. For example, they believed in one ultimate God, the essence of deity, but that deity was, was shared and kind of passed down through these emanations. The deity emanated down to other beings. And so you have God at the top, but his deity flows down to these spiritual beings who are like quasi-divine, and below them are, are physical beings like us. But they very much believed in these spiritual forces above us who can impact and influence our lives for better, for worse. And they referred to them as angels, and they taught that to avoid harm by these angels. And if you're going to ascend up the ladder yourself, become closer to the divine, well, you needed to worship these angels. You've got to pay homage to them if you want to get through this life. And then this strange mix of teaching included a belief in Jesus. They incorporated Jesus into their philosophy. They saw Jesus as one of these emanations of the divine. He's high up on the ladder, but he's not fully God or fully man. He's therefore not sufficient or not supreme. And he was not to be worshiped exclusively. You needed to cover your bases. So they would, they would worship Jesus, but you also have to worship these other angels. This teaching sounds super strange and foreign to us today, but this is what the early church was facing in that culture, and specifically the, the church of Colossae. And this becomes very clear as we study the letter of Colossians, and especially chapter 2. And that's where we're at right now. So you can take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 2. And Paul writes much of Colossians to counter the false claims and practices of these false teachers who were going around town. And this in part explains why, for example, down in verse 18, he's going to warn them against those who worship angels. That's what it says. Instead, they should hold fast to the head, Christ. He's the one who made all things. He's over all things. And Jesus is not on the same level as angels. He's not even a little bit above them. He's on a completely different plane. He's creator their creation. And he is therefore supreme and sufficient for all of our needs. Now, he alone is worthy of all of our worship. Now, it may be true that this specific brand of false teaching in Colossians is completely foreign to us. And we're not going to encounter anything like this today, per se. But we still need to know and believe that Jesus is supreme and sufficient because challenges to his position are never ending. They might take different shape and different nuances, but in the end, they're actually all the same. And to this end, Paul also writes to show the Colossians Christ's supremacy in his person and his work. And that is something that's always going to be relevant for us. So in chapter 2, after warning them in verse 8 not to be taken captive by philosophy or empty deception, he reminds them how they've been made complete in Christ. Meaning in Christ, we have all that we need. I mean, Christ is the fullness of deity. How could he not be enough for us and for our real needs and so from here, Paul goes on to give three displays of Christ's absolute sufficiency for us. That he alone can answer all of our real problems and questions, which is why he alone is, is worthy of all of our worship and adoration. Not, not the angels, just Christ alone. And so in the past couple of weeks, we've found, for example, verses 11 and 12, Jesus is our answer to sin's power. And then verses 13 and 14 Jesus is our answer to sin's penalty. That through his death on the cross and resurrection, that Jesus alone has thoroughly dealt with our sin problem. He's both given us a new nature and dealt with our sin nature by giving us a new heart. And he he completely forgave us of all of our sins and paying the debt for us. And so if we're going to be freed from sin's power and sin's penalty over us, Christ is the only answer. He's the only way, the only one who can redeem us. But there's one more display of Christ's sufficiency here, though. It's in verse 15, which is our passage today. Just one little verse where we find how Jesus is third, our answer to sin's promoters, you might say. And by this, we're just referring to spiritual powers who are at work to oppose God and his people. That there is a very real spiritual realm. the false teachers had their depiction of spiritual beings all wrong. But that doesn't mean they didn't exist. They do. Angels and demons are real. Spiritual warfare is real. And the Bible teaches that what goes on there in this spiritual realm that we can't even detect can have a very real impact in our world. Now, you may never think about this. This might be totally out of sight, out of mind to you. In fact, any talk of the supernatural like this might sound more like a fantasy novel to you than reality. But at the same time, like I said, it seems like such beliefs are coming back into the collective consciousness. There seems to be more of an openness to spiritual beings. Maybe that explains why I've spoken to more than a few Christians who are gripped by real fear and concern over angels and demons. Many are looking for explanations and answers. They or their loved ones are shackled by mental illness or addiction or behavior problems. And they wonder, could demons be involved? Is the devil making me do it? Is the reason my life is so bad right now is I'm just collateral damage of some spiritual war taking place? People wonder. Now, whether you ever think about such issues or not, the Bible does address them. This is something the Lord wants his people to know. Not everything, not everything has been revealed. We can only go by what has been revealed. But he does want his people equipped with some key basic truths. And I'll tell you, topping the list of what God wants his people to know when it comes to spiritual forces is that though they are real, That Christ is supreme over all of them. There are evil forces at work in this world. but That should be no cause of alarm for Christians. Because Christ has in fact already triumphed over them. They're a defeated foe and a conquered enemy. And though battles may persist. The war has been won. Those in Christ can rest secure in the knowledge that greater is he who is in you. Than he who's in the world. And God very much, want, uh, very much wants you to live in this knowledge. He doesn't want you to live in fear as if you're the helpless victim of spiritual forces, because you're not. In fact, in Christ, we too have triumphed over them. We share in his triumph. So we need not fear spiritual forces, and we certainly need not worship them God wants us to place all of our worship and all of our confidence in Christ, in Christ alone. And again, that message is always going to be relevant for God's people. And so this morning, we're simply going to survey this third display of Christ's sufficiency, that Jesus is our answer to sin's promoters, so to speak. The text is short but it will take all of our time because there is literally a hidden world behind this verse. And let's go ahead and read it now, picking up where we left off last time, but here kind of finishing this section is Colossians 2.15. Let's read that. And Paul finishes and says of Christ, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, if you haven't been with us the past several weeks, this might seem just random or out of place. We're just looking at one verse right in the middle. But what Paul says here comes on the heels of everything he has been saying about what Jesus did on the cross and what he accomplished on the cross for us. So just for a little context, you can go back to verse 13. He mentioned that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And here we learn that a transaction was taking place on the cross. We had this certificate of debt, which was like a handwritten record of our Transgressions before the Lord. Think of all the things you have done against God and His will and His name. And imagine if they were all written in a book. It'd be a pretty big book. And we owe God a debt of perfect righteousness. We can't, we can't pay that debt. The certificate of debt testifies against us by which we'll be judged. But Jesus took, as we learn, this record of sins. He took this book and he, it's as if he signed every page. He crossed out our name and signed the pages as if our sins were his sins, as if our transgressions were, were things he had done and he had thought and he had said. He made them his own. He took our debt and then in dying on the cross in our place, he paid for them all. And being the son of God, he was able to pay for them all. And so we spent our time last week learning how Jesus conquered sin's penalty on our behalf by dying in our place. And that is the greatest work and victory Jesus won on the cross. But that's not the only work he did on the cross. It's not the only victory he accomplished on the cross. It is the greatest, for sure. But on the cross, Jesus made another and related conquest. That scripture teaches that in death, Jesus also conquered all evil spiritual powers. This is a real dimension of the atonement that's worth exploring. And so that's what verse 15 does. It gives us just the tiniest of windows. We're going to explore it. Verse 15 mentions these rulers and authorities. You see that? We've seen these twin terms before. Like go back to verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, and in him, you've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And you read these verses in English without much background or context. You might just think it's referring to human rulers and authorities. And Jesus certainly is the head over human rulers and authorities. But as you look deeper into these terms that Paul uses and how he uses them, becomes very clear that these are referring to spiritual beings. And the word we use for them would be demons. Look back at Colossians 1:16. Back in the first chapter. He says of Christ for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. Notice, all things have been created by Jesus. Not just visible things, but invisible things as well. Not just things on earth, but things in heaven. And Paul elaborates what he's talking about. He says, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Four terms. And they refer to invisible heavenly beings. There is some hierarchy, some power system to them. We don't know that much about them, but we know many of them are wicked and arrayed against God and his people. Now, if you care to, you can flip back to Ephesians 6, verse 12, where Paul uses the same terms and he makes explicit, we're talking about heavenly beings. Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not talking about human enemies. He says, but against the rulers of, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He uses the same terms as rulers and authorities. and makes crystal clear that we have a whole other battle going on, on a whole other plane, that we can't even see. But it's there, it's real. There's a spiritual warfare. Now, here in Colossians 2, after talking about Jesus conquering sin on the cross, now Paul is adding a single verse about how the death of Jesus impacted these invisible heavenly forces. In Colossians, this is actually the third time Paul has referenced these heavenly beings. We just looked at Colossians 1.16 and 2, verse ten that he's already mentioned, you know, Jesus created them all and he's head over them all. You know, in Colossians, Paul is establishing the supremacy of Jesus. So, it makes sense. He's letting people know, like, Jesus is way supreme over Satan and demons. He made them all. He's head over them all. However, you know, Satan and demons sure seem to be acting out of line. They don't seem to be playing by God's rules or or living under Christ's headship. They're, in fact, fallen, wicked, and rebellious. They seek to destroy and corrupt the work of God on earth, and as long as they exist, and as long as their rebellion persists, it it seems to present a challenge to Christ's supremacy. I mean, just how supreme is he? Why are they still allowed to exist and rebel? I mean, if God is so powerful, why is there still evil? How are these spiritual beings allowed to cause so much ruin and damage to God's creation? And why doesn't God do something to stop them. Well, scripture teaches God will do something about them. And God in his sovereignty has allowed evil to exist in this world. He sovereignly allowed Satan to rebel. He allowed Adam and Eve to rebel. He allowed you and me to rebel. And he could instantly judge all who transgress his ways. He'd be perfectly just to do so. But in his mercy, Out of a desire to save some and redeem a remnant, he is long-suffering with human and angelic rebellion. When his plan of redemption is complete, though, all evildoers, human and angelic, will be judged once and for all. Evil will be removed from his creation. Their rebellion will not persist forever. And God will make his supremacy known without a doubt. But what Paul is saying here is that, that God, by sending Jesus to the cross, he's already made that clear. He's already made it clear. And though the day of that final judgment awaits, and although Satan and demons are still allowed to exist in rebellion, that God's son has already conquered their power on the cross. They're a defeated enemy. They're already sentenced to perdition. It's just a matter of time that the the, the triumph has been displayed on the cross. So specifically verse 15, it says that God disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities through Christ. This word disarm literally means to strip off as in removing clothing. It's only other usage is in Colossians 3, 9, which talks about us laying aside or, or putting aside the old self in Christ. We strip off the body of flesh, the old self, which just means we're free from its power. We're no longer bound to the corrupting influence of the old self. And likewise, Paul says here that that these rulers and authorities have been stripped of their power. That they have authority over us no more. In ancient warfare, if you conquered another city, a common tactic would be to disarm them. So you want to leave them alive? You're going to extract tribute from them, but you don't want them rising up against you again. So you would disarm them. You take all their weapons, all their armor, you take their horses, you take their chariots, You leave them nothing. In fact, sometimes an enemy would be so disarmed, they would not even be allowed to retain iron tools like plows for fear that they would turn them into swords. A thoroughly disarmed foe could be a nuisance, but they're not a real threat. They, they can't fight. And with this in mind, it encourages us to know that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. They've not been eradicated for now, but Satan and his demons no longer pose an eternal threat to God's people. This leads us to ask though, like, what, what does that really mean? How exactly were Satan and demons disarmed on the cross? And that just makes us ask, like, what kind of weapons did they use against us? What weapons were taken away from them if they're disarmed? What power and authority did they have over us before Christ? Let's think about that. And it's very interesting, but the Bible teaches that Satan has power over this world. He has real power and real authority over this world for now. Scripture makes that very clear. Three times, Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. First John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world is in his power. Revelation 12.9 adds that he deceives the whole world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is outright called the God of this world. He's the God of this world. How can this be? You may wonder, like, isn't God the God of this world? And doesn't the whole world lie in God's power? Well, yes, of course. But again, God has sovereignly allowed Satan to rebel. And he has allowed death to spoil and corrupt and reign over his perfect creation. And so in a measure, God allowed Satan to usurp his authority and rule over this world. But okay then, in what way has Satan exerted his power and rule over the earth? And the answer is in death. It's in death. He holds the power of death, which came about through sin. The wages of sin is death. If Satan can just lead people into sin, well, he's effectively captured them and killed them. And that's what he wants to do. And scripture teaches he has done just that. And corrupting Adam and Eve, he effectively killed the whole human race. And he and his demons continue to wage a spiritual truth war, leading people away from God into sin and error. It's no wonder that Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning. Now, hopefully, though, you can start to see how Christ's death on the cross would defeat Satan's power and disarm him. Satan's power over us is completely tied to our sin. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he's very happy to take your certificate of debt and dangle it over you and use it before God to remind him that you've transgressed, you've sinned, you deserve an eternal death. I mean, of course, never mind his own rebellion, he just wants to see others go down. And though Satan's accusations are obviously hypocritical, they are nonetheless correct. He's right. We have sinned. We have transgressed. We deserve eternal separation from God. That's the penalty. His deception of the human race has succeeded. And he has enslaved mankind to the power of death. But what if Jesus did something? About our sins. What if he removed them? What if he paid for them? What if he nailed them to the cross? What if Jesus dealt with our sin problem. And completely answered sin's power. And sin's penalty over us. Well that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. Which we've been learning about. Verses 11 through 14 here. That in Christ we are free. From sin and death. Completely. Those were the weapons of Satan. The means by which he gained power and authority over us. But now hopefully you can see that because of the cross, he's disarmed. Listen to one key verse, which kind of brings us together. It's Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I'll I'll read it. Where he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, talking about us, that he himself, Christ, Likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, we were held in bondage to sin and death, and Satan brought that about. But Christ came and he used death itself. To defeat Satan and his power. That Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Which is death. By becoming a curse for us. Hanging on the tree. But as Christ himself conquered sin and death. By rising from the dead. That Satan has no more power. Over those who are in Christ. By faith. And in Revelation 118. Jesus said this. He said I am the living one. I was dead. And behold. I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What can you say to that? What can Satan say back to that? Nothing. But these truths of Christ's victory over sin, death, and Satan, they're meant to encourage us to live in confidence. Because the one free in Jesus is, is free indeed. The enemy may persist to ensnare us in sin. But if you're in Christ by faith, you remain in Christ by faith. You persevere in Christ by faith. You overcome. Now back to Colossians 2. Let's carry on a little bit in this text. Again, it's just a short little verse, but there's a whole world behind it. And Paul adds a little bit more here. He says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them. This word displays derived from the Greek word for example. It has a negative connotation to make an example out of someone, to publicly shame them, to openly disgrace someone. Is what this means. See words used in Matthew one nineteen of Joseph. Remember, Joseph and Mary were betrothed, but she got pregnant. And naturally he thought she was unfaithful. So He was going to send her away in secret because he didn't want to openly disgrace her and openly shame her. But here we have the opposite, that God very much intended to openly shame and openly disgrace these demonic rulers and authorities. That his victory over them was was not supposed to be behind closed doors, but in the open square. And God for sure made his conquest known in the heavens. And this is why he has revealed to us as well, that we would know he's put them to shame. God very much much wants us to know that he has triumphed over all the forces of evil on the cross because he wants us to live in Christ in confidence, not fear. Now, speaking of triumph, you see on verse 15, he adds that God has triumphed over them through him meaning through Christ and his cross. There's a very specific word picture behind this term triumph. And it pictures the Roman triumph, which was this old, you know, celebration or parade that was done to celebrate Roman rulers or generals who had come back after conquering an enemy. And the returning general would march through the streets of Rome. This was like an old publicity stunt before the days of modern media. This was designed for, one, the glory of Rome, but really the glory of the general. This is all to the praise of his name. But commentator R. Kent Hughes recalls the description of a three-day triumph of the Roman general, Emilius Paulus. He had returned from capturing Macedonia. And so all Rome turned out on the streets to watch him come home. They built scaffolding. They could sit and watch this processional, the Roman triumph. And the first two days of this, this is a three-day triumph. The first two days of this triumphal procession, there's just hundreds of chariots and wagons, never-ending. And they were filled with all the, 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 the plunder from war, gold, silver, artifacts, paintings, statues, all the treasure they had captured. And furthermore, they were filled with heaps of armor and swords from the Greeks, from the Macedonians just showing how they defeated their enemy. At day three, though, came the enemy themselves. Countless captives were paraded through the streets in chains. They were there to showcase the futility of resistance to Rome. Then came the enemy king's personal servants and children. Also shackled, they were often weeping and begging the crowd for mercy. And behind them came King Perseus himself, He's dressed all in black to symbolize a defeated king without glory, but he was not the end of the parade. The end of the parade was always the Roman general, the one who had conquered. And so the general came last. He'd be standing in a four-horse chariot wearing a robe of purple interwoven with gold, wearing a laurel wreath on his head, which was a symbol of, of glory and splendor. And following behind him was his army who would literally be singing songs to praise his deeds. Rome was in many ways wicked, but this would have been a spectacle to behold. It's quite a spectacle. But with this Roman triumph in mind, and we get this amazing word picture of what Paul means here. That God has led the defeated demonic forces in a triumph. He's put them on display. And he's put on display his victory and conquest over Satan and demons. That they disarmed, demoralized, defeated foe. And granted, the day of their execution and total elimination from the earth is yet future. But you know, what can they do to oppose Christ, the conquering king? I mean, he holds the keys of death. And what can they do to oppose Christ's people? They can afflict And tempt and stumble, but they can kill no longer. For those whom Christ has freed, he is bound to himself, and there's no undoing those chains. Now, speaking of, we are actually part of Christ's triumphal procession. He comes as a conquering king who has raided enemy territory, and he invaded, he defeated the enemy, but he also set captives free. Didn't we learn this before in Colossians? We can go back to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Remember? It says that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were in enemy territory. We, we were the enemy. But in his mercy, he did not judge us, forgave us, rescued us, took us out, brought us into his kingdom. And so now we follow Christ. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.14 uses the same word for triumph, the same picture. It says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And now we're, we're not the defeated enemy by his grace. We should be, but we're now part of his army following behind him, singing his praises. We are the captives who were set free in Christ to follow. He is our king now. And we are happily captured by him. Because in bondage to Christ. There's freedom. From sin. From death. And from Satan. And once again this victory all goes back to the cross. We see in the cross of Christ. A display of God's wisdom. And power. And glory. That he took this symbol of death. And defeat. But he transformed it into a symbol of Of life and victory. Now, of course, the cross was not the end of Christ's story. He died, he was buried, seemingly defeated by Satan and death. But Jesus proved his victory and power over death and resurrection. It's like Romans 1 4 says, he was declared to be the Son of God with power in the resurrection. The resurrection was proof positive that he won. He completed his mission. He paid for all of our sins and he was triumphant over these very real forces of evil. And so now death is swallowed up in victory. And after resurrecting, Jesus then ascended to glory, back to the right hand of the Father. And in fact, it's not Christ's death or his resurrection, but his ascension that is the capstone of his supremacy over spiritual powers in taking his rightful place at the right hand of the father that God has completed this display that Jesus is above all. This this is God openly shaming the rulers and the authorities that Christ has taken his seat at the right hand. No one can challenge him at the right hand. I want you to do this. I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter one. It's just back a few pages, and you know all the parallels with Ephesians and Colossians. Look at Ephesians 1 for a second. Now, follow closely. He's going to use the same terms for rulers and authorities. He's going to talk about these spiritual powers. But just listen to what he says here. Ephesians 1, I'm going to start at verse 18. He says that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, In the heavenly places. How high up is that right hand? Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority. And power and dominion. Those are our key terms. He's talking about angelic beings. Far above them though. He's seated far above them. And every name that is named. Not only in this age and the age to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet. Gave him as head over all things. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This passage, or Paul is is longer in Ephesians than he is in Colossians, this passage helps because it really makes explicit the, the application to Christ's triumph over these evil spiritual forces. That there is an invisible world with unseen hostile forces who are against us. But God has revealed enough to let us know that we need not fear that he wants our eyes to be enlightened to what? He says the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory and the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. God wants us just to just stay focused on him and his power, which is surpassing any other power It's far greater. He has proven that in Christ his death, His burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And so now we are to live in confidence in our head, who's Christ. The head of the body of the church, he's greater. What's there to worry about here? That greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. And all times, therefore, just we are to trust him, cling to him, pray to him. Being convinced that Christ is supreme dispels fear. And that leads us to live in boldness And that's how God wants us to live, to live in faith, not fear. We serve the head of the church. He's the head of all rulers. He's the head of all creation. What is there to fear? God wants us to live in faith, not fear. Now, this does not mean, though, in the meantime, in this life before glory, we can grow complacent because Satan and his demons are still allowed to be in rebellion against God And his people. They cannot possess believers. It's not possible. And they cannot steal your salvation. It's not possible. But they can afflict and they can tempt. And therefore, we are told to stand firm against their ways. And so, you know, Ephesians 6, if if you don't, well, turn to Ephesians 6. And look at verse 11. What we are told to do in light of these spiritual forces. We don't need to worship them. We don't need to pay homage to them. No, verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's still scheming to ensnare God's people. But even here, Christ's triumph empowers us. That's why we are told, look at the verse before, verse 10. What are we to do? Well, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We don't have strength to fight Satan and demons. Their power is actually much greater than any human. But our head is much greater than them. And in that we are secure. For believers, Satan is like a snake that has been defanged. It can strike, it can hurt, but it cannot kill. The enemy has been disarmed, and in the meantime, we have been armed. We are given the armor of God. Now, the thing is, though, even as you study the armor of God in Ephesians 6, do you know what it represents? You realize what the armor represents. It's a metaphor. We don't literally have armor. But Paul tells us, as you read, what it represents. It represents truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Just read the, the passage And literally, the armor is simply a metaphor for all the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how we wage spiritual warfare. You don't need holy water or or exorcisms. We extinguish the flaming arrow of the evil one just by the truth. And for those in Christ by faith, Satan can no longer bring about an eternal death. He is very happy to sideline believers to stumble them in the race, to make them as ineffective as possible for God's kingdom. He does that in ways unknown to us, undetectable by us. We don't have eyes to see. But if he can just get us to doubt our salvation, to believe we're still condemned, to wallow in guilt, if he can get us to just take our eyes off Christ and his cross, then he will succeed in putting us on the sidelines. The enemy is still waging a truth war. But this is why God has now armed us with the truth. And this is why Paul prayed in chapter 1 that your eyes would be enlightened. To what? To just the truth. The truth of Christ and his gospel. You need to be so filled with the truth of Christ's gospel and so convinced of his supremacy. There's just no room for error lies and the deception of the enemy. There's an old story of the reformer, Martin Luther. He recalls one time having a war in his own mind, as if Satan was accusing him. And the evil one constantly reminded Luther of all of his sins. He would tell him, like, you've you've done this. You've said this. You thought this. Look how, how much evil you've done. And Luther said back in his mind, is that all? And the devil said, no, that's not all. He brought up more and more. He listed more sins of Luther, reminding them how evil they all were. And Luther said again, is that all? Bring them all. And the devil said, no, that's not all. If I brought them all, the list would wrap around the world twice. But Luther said to the evil one, just bring them all. And so the devil brought up every single sin he could think of. And finally, when the list was exhausted... Luther replied, you know, just just right at the bottom of this list, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We need that, that same reminder of the same gospel. That when we are accosted with fear, doubt, guilt, error, deception, and temptation, whether it's coming from our own flesh or spiritual forces, we don't know. You can never tell. But the response is the same, which is why it doesn't matter. The response is the same. Just fly to the cross. They remember that the sufficient Savior and the finished work he did on your behalf. You know, more faith in Christ is always the answer. You can know for sure that the last place the evil one wants you to go is the cross. He's happy to see your mind occupied with something else. And this was Paul's concern for the Colossians. That their minds would be taken captive by empty deception and the world's philosophy. Remember? And I wonder how many of those false ideologies were actually the doctrine of demons. As Paul says in 1 Timothy. This was Paul's fear for all the churches. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds... Will also be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see, this is the truth war that's being raged, but we overcome by continued devotion—just that the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. Now, He's the answer. He's the only answer to our needs. He's the answer to sin's power. He's the answer to sin's penalty. And he's the answer to sin's promoters. And when Satan accuses, while well, Christ pleads, we have now an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and that we just simply need to trust in him. You know, many great men and women of the faith have realized the importance of speaking truth to our own minds in waging this truth war, and to help them in that, to help them overcome guilt fear, doubt, temptation, the devil's schemes. They took to put God's truth to song as a way to, like I mentioned in the morning, to renew the mind and worship God at the same time. And Luther himself did that. His most famous hymn actually is one that would help him overcome the devil's schemes of fear, guilt, doubt, temptation. Let me read you just a couple of quick verses as we finish from a mighty fortress is our God. He writes in the song, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing our helper. He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing for still our ancient foe. He's talking about the devil doth seek to work us. woe. his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. He says and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fell him This just goes to show I think the power of song to implant truth Biblical truth in our minds. One way or another, though, this is what the church needs. In the world, in our own flesh, and in the spiritual realm, a truth war persists. Christ is the victor. And we triumph in him. But if we're going to follow him, if we're going to run well the race that's set before us, that we need to be setting our mind on things above. And so daily you need to recall whether it's in your bible a song a verse a sermon anything just recall what the savior did for you on the cross and let the gospel dispel the fear the worry the doubt the guilt the temptation and instead produce security assurance and confidence not in self but in christ let me leave you with romans 8:37 through 39 Paul says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we need these reminders and this truth delivered straight to our minds. What is real? What is not? And though we have no eyes to see your your truth reveals to us, we have an enemy, one beyond the world, one beyond our own flesh, that there are angelic beings, Satan and his followers who have rebelled against you and their desire, their schemes are to see us do the same. And in large measure they have succeeded. In full measure, they have succeeded in condemning the whole human race. Now we are corrupt in sin, just like them, awaiting only a final judgment. But we thank you that your mercy is greater than our sin. And and because you loved us, you sent God, the Son, Christ, to die for us, to redeem us, to free us in his death from sin's power and penalty, and to go one step further and also free us from sin's promoters, Satan, demons, those who would continually seek to to take us down. But in Christ, we triumph, for he triumphed over them, in dying, rising, and ascending. That's where our Lord is right now, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, guaranteeing our sure salvation. None can take us away. Yet we must run well this race. We need not be stumbled or entangled by sin, which our enemy seeks to have us do. And for this, you've given us armor, the truth, the gospel faith, righteousness. This is what we need to set our minds on that we would not fall prey to the schemes of the enemy. And so this morning, every day, help us in our resolve to set our mind on things above and to look to Christ at the right hand. And uh, as we long to join him there by your grace, to keep going in, in confidence and boldness in our Savior. And by that, we will run well. All to his glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.